early on was more, let's get to know each other. And then, of course, you know, once we get into the OR, you really get to see what are the conditions that they're working under. And um, I'll tell you, Jimmy, if I can describe this. First thing I noticed was that uh, the, the room was incredibly dark. So they had an, a, a, a surgical light with you know, six bulbs, but only one bulb was working. So it's so dim. Uh, and I don't know how they can see what they're seeing because I, mean, I know Keith, uh, you know, in the OR, I need headlights and everything just right. They were operating under some of the most challenging conditions. Uh, electricity was going on and off. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Have you ever wondered what it's like being a doctor in one of the most isolated and restricted countries on earth? We have. It's a question Keith and I have explored and discussed many times over the years since starting this podcast. But how do you find and connect with someone in a country where virtually all citizens are prohibited from contact with the outside world? and heavily surveilled when they do. Today's episode is one we were beginning to think we could never do. Finding the right person to interview involved overcoming barriers that were simply beyond our control. We even considered the possibility of interviewing a physician defector. Even if we could find such a person, how would we verify their identity, cross-check their stories? How would we really know who we were talking with? So we tabled the idea, always hoping in the back of our minds that one day we might find the right person. Well, today we have that person, and it turns out we were looking in all the wrong places. We should have been looking closer to home. Dr. Key Park is a faculty neurosurgeon at Harvard Medical School, director of the North Korea program at the Korean American Medical Association, and member of the National Committee on North Korea and the Council of Korean Americans. He's a world-renowned researcher and expert on global health and humanitarian medical aid. And get this, since 2007, Key has visited North Korea over 20 times, working alongside North Korean doctors, attending North Korean medical conferences, and even operating on patients in North Korean hospitals. There are few, if any, outsiders, especially Americans that we're aware of, with greater first-hand experience and trusted access in North Korea. As you'll soon see, that trusted access has been hard-earned over many years. It's what enables Key to continue his mission, helping patients in North Korea and around the world. As I'm certain all of you will understand, we have no desire to do anything that could jeopardize Key's ability to continue his work or even endanger his personal safety. While this was an eye-opening conversation, it does not include any political discussions or questions related to the current North Korean regime. But it was an amazing episode and a journey into a world most of us know very little or even nothing about. With that said, let's get started. Keith, I'm curious. You've been, according to what I've read online, traveled to North Korea over 20 times and not as a tourist, as a surgeon, in many cases in the operating room, treating patients, training surgeons there. Tell us about your very first trip there. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. So, so let's let's make let's backtrack a little bit about how that first trip actually happened. There was some activity that had to happen beforehand. Obviously, you know, you don't just pick up an airline ticket and and they just go into North Korea. Um, so what happened was um, I had an interest in working with North Korean 
uh, neurosurgeons. You know, I'm, I'm a U.S. trained neurosurgeon. I'm Korean heritage, and I mean, you know, you, un, unless you work, you know, you're living in, in, under a rock. You, you know, things are hard within North Korea. You don't hear a lot of stories, but you can put two and two together, and and then you know, the health of the people are. Are, 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 you know, it's a challenging situation. And then, you know, and me, with my background being Korean, I knew that there are neurosurgeons in North Korea that I would uh, love to, you know, interact with and then support. And we got advice from the World Vision, uh, uh, World Vision office that was working in North Korea and saying, we want to introduce you to the North Korean diplomats here in New York. And then you should meet with them and offer them uh, your, your assistance and a willingness to actually host a North Korean delegation of uh, neurosurgeons in the U.S. That was advice that we got. This what year was, was this? Just to put a time stamp. 2000, yeah, it was in 2007. So uh, they arranged for a lunch meeting at a restaurant in New York City. Two North Korean diplomats from their U.N. mission, right? North Korea has a permanent mission to the U.N. They came to lunch. I was there with some of other people. And it was the first time I met North Koreans ever, right? You know, I grew, I grew up in South Korea. Uh, uh, some of the things that I was told when I was growing up there is that, you know, they they have horns, you know? <laughs> you know like, <laughs> they tell them that about us too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, so when I met them, I was, I, I mean, it was very, very, you know, it was apprehensive, but the guy that I met, his name, last name is same as mine. By the way, you know, Park is a very common last name, like Kim and Lee the same last name, same age, and his English was perfect. And he came with one other person and we hit it off right away. And, 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 and uh, the, that gentleman actually is now uh, uh, the ambassador uh, at the UN. Mm-hmm. You know, at that, when I met him in 2007, he was a counselor, a level diplomat. So, so uh, uh, at, you know, we offered, uh, you know, uh, introduced ourselves as Korean American neurosurgeons. We wanna work with North Korean neurosurgeons and we'd like to host a delegation in, in the U.S. But a month later, I get a phone call from this, this person saying, would you like to go to Pyongyang? I said, of course. And so that was, meeting was in July and, and September, he offered me an, an invitation to visit uh, Pyongyang for an international medical conference at the same time, meet some of the people, neurosurgeons specifically in Pyongyang. We, so that was my first time. And then we actually uh, hosted a delegation of two uh, neurosurgeons, North Korean neurosurgeons in the U.S. in April of 2008. And that was the first and the last time we were able to successfully bring North Koreans to the U.S. because, you know, the tensions have gotten worse since then. Um, That was interesting, working with the State Department, getting visas for North Koreans to come. And when they gave us the visas, they said uh, all meetings had to be closed and no press can be invited to any of these meetings. Um, yeah, but that was uh, sort of how things got started, uh, and then of course, you know, my first visit was in what's uh, September of two thousand and seven. Yeah, during that month time between the first meeting and then when they invited you, I mean, you're an American. They they've got to wonder: Are you working for the intelligence services? You know, I mean, I'm sure they did some screening. Was was there just unusual questions that they asked, or was it pretty straightforward, as you recall? You mean from the North Korea side? Exactly. So there's a, a two-page visa uh, application uh, form, and it, it, it's a standard form. You know, it looks, uh, they ask you questions about your, your place of employment, your education, uh, uh, you know, per, intended purposes, those kinds of things. 
if they did a background, so they also actually called uh, me at home to double check, you know, that, you know, the numbers, you know, verify, you mm -hmm. know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So how, how did you get into the country? How did this, how does this work? Yeah. So what, first thing is uh, you, you, you pick up your visa in, in, in the uh, North Korean embassy in Beijing. Now, there are other places you can pick it up, but that's where I chose to pick up the, 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 the visa. So you, you fly from, uh, in my case, uh, New York to Beijing, uh, spend the night, uh, go to the embassy. And, um, you know, it's an interesting process. You buzz the bell and, and they, they ask, who are you? It's like, I'm here to pick up a visa. They click the door open and you kind of come into the back doors. And there's a consular services section, but there's only like two or three people there at all times. Anyway, you pick up, you pick up your visa. And then you take a, a flight and we had two choices. One is the Air China flight from Beijing to Pyongyang. Uh, and then the other one was the Air Koryo, the national health, uh, the national, uh, you know, the uh, airlines of North Korea uh, to Pyongyang. Of course, I chose Air Koryo, right? Uh, so the, it, it, and it was an, an old Russian airplane, airliner. Um, it didn't even, at, this was in 2007, the overhead baggage compartments were not hatched. They were like, you know, like a, like a train, uh, like, like a train with like netting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Oh, now, since then, they've upgraded their planes and now sure. they're, they're very modern with LCD screens and everything. Yeah. How was the food? <laughs> or did you get fed? Oh, well, yeah. Well, they, flight, they, but... It was called, uh, the people get this food and it was the mystery meat. <laughs> <laughs> It's tasty. Uh, it's probably chicken, but you know, uh, yeah, yeah, the food was pretty good on on board. But food is incredibly good inside North Korea in Pyongyang. You know, the restaurants that they have, uh, especially the ones that cater to the international community, uh, top notch. And I can, we can go into another whole segment about you know doing a food trip to Pyongyang in one of these days. No kidding. Yeah. So so that first visit, what? Um, uh, they obviously, I'm sure they guided you everywhere. What what were you able to see? Who were you able to meet the first time? Did you were you able to get into the ORs and observe? Oh, great question, Keith. No, the answer is we were not allowed into the ORs at okay. that time. Uh, although in April of 2008, on my second visit, we were allowed into the OR. So this, is, this speaks to some of the um, uh, the you know how do we gain access into the more you know, behind these these doors, and it has to do with time and trust. Mm -hmm. A lot of people show up for one time, want to take pictures, and they never show up again. And they've seen mm -hmm. that over and over again. Uh, so uh, uh, first time we actually met the neurosurgeons in North Korea. You know, we, it was a formal meeting and introduced ourselves and, said, and, and, and told them who we were. And then in April, this is right after we had hosted the neurosurgeons from Pyongyang in, in, in the U.S. We were back in Pyongyang. And then at that point, you know, the relationship had uh, had had significantly, you know, uh, been upgraded is how I would describe it, and we had a lot more access. Did the um, was there a language barrier? Were the, the neurosurgeons able to speak English, or did you share any language, or were there interpreters? Right. So uh, we're provided with interpreters, and there. Okay. You know, by the way, the North Koreans when they speak English, it's per perfect. They mm -hmm. catch every little nuance. It's not. It's not like, and then they're pronunciation is, 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 is quite good. And I, 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 they practice over and over again until they get it just right. Uh, but I don't need translators because I, I'm bilingual. 
So I was able to communicate in Korean with my colleagues. So this conference, I saw in, in some of your publications, you've looked at medical research or, or journal publications on North Korea, and then in some cases out of North Korea. What did this conference look like? I mean, how many other people from other countries were there? Are they open to ideas from the outside? Um, is there a, a vibrant academic medical community in North Korea? What does that look like? So this, that's a very interesting question, Colin. This particular uh, medical conference is specifically for people of Korean heritage overseas and North Korea. So it's the, the official language is in Korean, and they invite doctors of Korean heritage from outside of North Korea. Hmm. When I was there in 2007, there were actually 30 South Korean doctors who came. You know, that's when the relationship was still uh, reasonable. And then following year, that stopped and it hasn't happened since then. But there were uh, uh, Korean Chinese doctors, Korean German doctors, Korean Australian doctors. Uh, so there was, you know, a, 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 a sort of an international flavor coming together and then sharing latest medical technology and research with each other. Uh, so that's that that's the, 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 the so in North Korea, they have a specific ministry that deals with overseas compatriots is what they call it. Uh, uh, and that's on the same level as Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Really? Uh, uh, yes. So if you're actually an American, so let's say, Keith, you want to go into North Korea, your visa, an application will be processed through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because you're an American foreigner. But mm -hmm. even though Key Park is an American citizen, because I'm a Korean uh, overseas compatriot, I, have, I go through a different agency. Huh. And then they have a whole new, they have their own set of conferences and things like that. Yeah. Um, so is it pretty standard? I mean, they're just different uh, breakout rooms giving presentations. I mean, how big was it? That's right. So we had, you know, the, the, the spice specialty, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I can be in a, in a meeting and I'm learning about dermatology and, you know, it doesn't, you know, <laughs> in the U.S. It, it's like so subspecialized, but there's some plenary sessions. And uh, it was really interesting to see the late, latest uh, uh, research being done by North Korean uh, scientists. So there, there are people from academic institutions, but they also have like an NIH equivalent, the Academy of, 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 of uh, Medical Science. So one time I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just looking at the, the talk and they're talking about producing a, a recombinant uh, human growth hormone in North Korea. Hmm. So Keith, you know this, I mean, when, if you, you to, do, to, to, to produce these proteins, hormonally active uh, hormones, that's not an easy feat. And they need recombinant technology, you know, uh, all that stuff. So, but they did. So, you know, it, it gives you a window into their uh, uh, level of, um, you know, uh, you know, how they developing in, in terms of medical science and, and te technology. A few years ago, they, uh, uh, they didn't present this at the conference, but I was, I got the wind of uh, uh, news that they had, and developed in a, a CAT scanner, a, a CAT scanner at their Kim Chek University, which is their MIT, their the high, you know, their, their technology university, and they developed it. And they, they showed me the pictures that they, they were generating from this MRI at uh, the CAT scanner. And I just, out of curiosity, says, "How long? How much did this project cost? You know, the, the, you guys?" They said twenty thousand dollars. You know, and the image quality was quite good. So wow. I'm thinking, you know. That, that we got to figure out how to 
use this kind of you know know-how, and and I'm sure that the machine was developed uh, to be very uh, rugged, right? A resource unlimited setting, you know, appropriate. And it has, and I work in global health, as I mentioned, it has huge implications in, in terms of utility, and you know, and you know, one time we did a, a study looking at the, the the gap in CT scans in, in district hospitals around you know the lower and the middle income countries. It's like twenty thousand CT scanners. So I, can, can we talk about a, maybe a CAT scanner from North Korea that's mass produced and then and and, and distributed using that money uh, uh, to help bring health aid to North Korea, right? You know, so some some sort of a safe, you know, cycle. Yeah, because there's different types of innovations that come under constraints, right? I mean, you're working under constraints, and you have to you have to come up with a solution without having just money thrown at it, like we do here in America, right? Um, like I remember reading years ago about a um, um, an incubator for for newborns, uh, but made out of auto parts because auto parts are everywhere. <laughs> so if they could source those, they could fix it. You know, um, you know, and it's it's interesting. But um, and anyway, we could go on and on. I was thinking about Robert Gale, who was on the program, and he talked about the differences in Soviet medical care when he was over there um, before Chernobyl, and then he was asked to come over after Chernobyl to treat patients. And they had at one point a conveyor belt kind of system where they had someone do the exposure, moved them to the next one. They did, you know, the, say a decompression, if it was a spinal procedure, whatever it was. And then each, each, you know, step along the way. And he said, actually, I would have been comfortable having the care myself. It was interesting. Not something we would have tried here, but, uh, but anyway, um, going to 2008 here. So this is your second trip, right? Um, That's you're right. now allowed to go into a hospital. Let's talk about that. Where did you go? How did, how did, how did that work? Yeah. Also right. how how did that how did that invitation come about yeah um, so is this something you initiated or was it uh, did the north koreans say all right we um it was great to see you at the first conference come back and we'll we'll spend more time that's the second part is is is, is exactly how it happened right you know when we were in pyongyang we said we want to come back and work with you understand your needs and, and try to support uh your 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 um you know capabilities uh, and in treating your patients, and uh, and then you know came they said come in the spring next year, and that's exactly what we did. We you know we we told the uh, we got the, the visa applications processed, and at that time uh, the we didn't have any restrictions from the U.S. government uh, to travel to North Korea. They were you know as a U.S. citizen we we're allowed to go at whenever we you know we wanted. You know that's changed since the uh, Otto Warmbier case. And then in 2017, uh, the, the, the State Department uh, issued a, a, a order that prevents U.S. citizens from using U.S. passports for travel to North Korea. And you have to seek special exemption. So uh, they do have an exemption for humanitarian workers. So we told the U.S. government uh, that some of the surgeries that we are doing are humanitarian surgeries, and they recognize that as valid. Uh, and then issued us a special validation passport for each travel into North Korea. Mm -hmm. So I had to get a new picture taken, new passport, I have to pay for a new passport, make an appointment for every time we go into North Korea. And, wow. and, and since 2018, and then one time, 2018, so we were, in, were there, I think, uh, um, uh, we got there and we got in 2017, 2018, we fully expected to get the visa, the passport again, uh, because the State Department gave us a passport at the end of 2017. And 
we got denied. And a number of other humanitarian organizations, US-based organizations, they were all denied. Hmm. And this is when we realized that US was uh, uh, actually denying in a systematic fashion, all humanitarian aid visits North Korea. And then we actually sat down and, and at that time, uh, there was a special representative, Stephen Began, who had just been hired to, to, to oversee new US policy in North Korea. And we told him and said, hey, this is, this is wrong. You know, this is like, you, you know, we, you gotta keep the uh, humanitarian work separate from political, uh, uh, you know, objectives. And uh, you know, to, to his credit, he was able to say to us, you know, a couple of months later saying, try again. And, and we got our visas, you know, not visas, but passports right. from the U.S. side so that we can apply for visas from the North Korea side. Hmm. Wow. So this uh, the second visit, um, do you tell us what this hospital looked like um, and what were, what were the objectives of this visit? Was it to train other surgeons? Was it just to participate, to to offer your skills for certain cases? I mean, what what were they expecting out of you? And what were you expecting? Right. I think it was just the early on was more, let's get to know each other. Exactly like what you said. And, 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 you know, as we said, we have some lectures, if you'd like to hear those, you know, that you know, we, you know, from like, let's say the latest uh, 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 management of brain tumors or, you know, uh, 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 brain hemorrhages or spine trauma. They love that. Uh, they, so they say, give us more of that. Uh, we were able to provide them with some textbooks, which they, they really liked. And then, of course, you know, once we get into the OR, you really get to see what, situ- what, what, what are the conditions that they're working under. And um, I'll tell you, Jimmy, if I can describe this. First thing I noticed was that uh, the, the room was incredibly dark. So they had an, a, a, a surgical light with you know, six bulbs, but only one bulb was working. Wow. So it's so dim. Uh, and I don't know how they can see what they're seeing because I mean I know Keith, uh, you know in the OR I need headlights and everything oh, yeah. just right. <laughs> they were operating under some of the most challenging conditions. Uh, electricity was going on and off. They had a voltage regulator, but some of the equipment wouldn't work hmm. because they, it has to be regulated very within a tight window. Um, oxygen was not piped in; it was in tanks, mm-hmm. so you can imagine during a, an operation and you'll hear a loud beep. And that indicates that the tank is running low. And for them, it's business as usual. They, they just, you know, we, this is, we just keep operating and you hear them bring in the new tank and switch it over. And that's what they used to do before. And a recorder in the yeah. machine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what's, what's interesting is the anesthesiologist. They don't have a, 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 a chart with all the grids on it, right? It's pre-printed. They have blank piece of paper. And for each operation, they have a ruler and they create their own grids with, you know, every 15 minutes markings. Wow. It's incredible. It's like a work of art. And then it's meticulous. Uh, And it goes to their, you know, they're they're highly professional. They're super conscientious. And like everybody else in the world that I know, the doctors, they want the best for their patients. Mm -hmm. What was your first procedure? Tell us about this. My fr- I think it was a closure of a, a, a birth defect on a child um, with a, a, you know, a myelomeningocele. It's a sac okay. that forms, a, it's, a, it's a severe form of uh, a spinal dysraphism, spinal bifida is right. It, that's what, that, that's what it is. And um, yeah. And I was working alongside um, the, the North Korean neurosurgeons who um, this particular one had trained in Russia. 
you know, so he had done a, a sort of additional training there and he's quite good, quite good at that. And technically they're excellent. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem isn't, is, isn't their, their, the hand skills, it's resources. Right. Did they trust you enough initially? What, 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 what did they allow you to do? I mean, I'm, I'm really curious. So it's really interesting, Colin. And, and this, uh, when they say, when you tell somebody you're you know, a surgeon uh, trained in the U.S., and you know you can talk the part. They just kind of give you the gown and scalpel and says, "Go ahead, let's see what you can do." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I struggled. I struggled. They didn't have a bovi. You know, I don't know if you know what bovi. You, you know, yes, what of course, is, right? Electric yeah. pottery. They just had a bipolar for for hemostasis. Um, so you know, it, it just everything is challenging. You want to look slick, but you know, you're like, you know, this, this is harder. <laughs> they could do a better job of exposure than you can. Yeah. Wow. it's humbling yeah did did you travel with uh sports staff did you bring uh or assistants or anything or was it just you and surgeons yeah it was just me and my loops oh wow uh, yeah okay. yeah yeah and then we would and then as we got to understand what the, the north koreans had in the or we were able to bring in some targeted like instruments so we, you know, I'm a spine surgeon, uh, Keith. So you know, mm-hmm. we we introduced spinal instrumentation to North Korea about 2015, 2014 for the first time, and doing wow. complex uh, spine stabilization for uh, spine fractures. They were not doing any of that before that. No kidding. Were they using any kind of pedicle screws ahead. or anything at all, or was it? I'm happy to say that Pyongyang Medical College, their premier teaching facility is now manufacturing their own spinal implants they were so proud of it at the last visit i went in november of 2019 goes hey dr park look at this wow (laughs) and it's it's yeah i'm not sure about the trade patents and things like that i i i i I would i I wouldn't be no comment (laughs) no comment there you know i don't know you know the design looked awfully similar to some of the other ones that we had donated Or are you allowed to bring anything? I mean, could you even bring disposable bipolars or kerosens or anything? I mean, yes. So, you know, we've been going there since 2007. And by the way, we I apologize to-, to everybody listening because they're like, what are you guys talking about? But uh, <laughs> now we're geeking out on spine surgery here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, so prior to this, you know, the, the, the sanctions being ramped up in the mid 20s, mid 2010s, right? So around 2016, 2017, things got really heated. For the, for the obvious reason, North Koreans were, you know, uh, scaling up their uh, nuclear weapons program, ballista missiles program, and there was a concern to, to the international community, and rightfully so, and that created a, an incredibly constricted uh, uh, space for humanitarian and, and health cooperation, and we, we literally just stopped providing any kind of uh, uh, equipment, because you have to get approval now from the U.S. as a U.S. Uh, 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 citizen U.S. Treasury has to give approval, and when, they, when to give approval, they want to know everything. What mm-hmm. are you doing? What are you giving them? Uh, how much is it worth? You know, who's it going to? Uh, so there's all that process, and you know, you, you really need to have like a lawyer to help you with this. And then the UN uh, um, Security Council, there's a there's a sanctions committee that you need to seek approval for any kind of shipment of goods. So so it gets uh, administratively too burdensome. And costly, honestly, to, to, to do that. And maybe that was intent. I'm, we're, not, we're not really sure, but it's, it certainly stopped us from shipping things uh, to North Korea. So even if something as basic as carrying your own trays from the hospital 
you know, in, in Boston where you are, I mean, th that wouldn't even do, even if you were planning on bringing that equipment back with you. That we used to do that. We used to take, you know, sets of, uh, you know, uh, cervical spine fracture uh, fixation uh, uh, sets, and then we bring extra implants. We would bring it in our suitcases because it was small enough to fit, you know, fit in there. But we, we at once the uh, the regulate, regulation uh, you know, the, the restrictions got uh, scaled up, and we you know, were just too afraid of, of being uh, of running afoul of the rules, you know. So. Uh, and then this is sort of sort of segues nicely into, you know, my my work with North Korea, which was more on the patient care, uh, working alongside North Korean doctors to looking at, you know, the international uh, uh, sanctions, the pressure uh, uh, against North Korea, the sanctions regime, and how, although they're intended to sort of deter North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons program and missiles program. It's having unintended uh, impact on the health of their people by, by preventing some of these international uh, uh, activities, as well as North Korea's ability to, to, to let's say, get parts for some of their equipments. I remember they had an, a sea arm from the 1960s. I mean, this <laughs> is like, a, like seeing a Volkswagen Beetle from the 60s, you know, <laughs> still working, right? So, and, and, and they had to hold the button down to see the image. It wasn't like click, you know. And then you see what you see and it just disappears. And they had it running for God knows how many years. The same guy running the machine is perfect. But then ultimately they needed a part and they, they, there's no mechanism for North Koreans to actually apply for sanctions exemption uh, to the UN. Well, number one, North Korea does not recognize the sanctions as, as, as valid. Um, so they have to smuggle everything in, you know, if you, that's the, that's the uh, situation. Yeah. Or make it themselves. Right. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, this would get us off track, but, you know, I think there's a broader discussion about sanctions and how well they're working today. You know, we're looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine, more people are discussing this, your colleagues, there, the ones you're working with people in the hospital, did they discuss this at all? Did they bring it up with you? How do you think they, they felt about it? You mean the sanctions? Exactly. I'm not sure if they're fully aware of all the, you know, the, the different facets of the sanctions, but they do know that the sanctions have reduced our, our, our curbed our ability to ship things. We, at one point, we shipped an entire container of medical equipment uh, mm -hmm. and we were able to do that, but then we weren't able to do that, do that anymore. Um, as far as, you know, their ability to get the parts, I think they are aware. Yeah, I think they are aware. Um, uh, they don't, as a rule, they don't tell us, you know, these sanctions are, you know, really, really crippling us. I think it may be a, a one of um, pride, maybe, you know, that they don't want to, they don't want to seem like, you know, what the, what, what the outside, you know, the, the pressure tactics are working. I guess that's, that's they don't want to acknowledge that, right? Like, is this hurting you? It's like, no, <laughs> you know, but I, but it is, it, it is, is impacting them. They just won't, they just won't uh, 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 openly. Uh, uh, acknowledge that. So, you know, we talked a little bit beforehand, you know, there's certain questions we're going to stay away from for obvious reasons. And I would imagine the people there do the same thing, right? They're just topics they're not going to discuss. Um, but if you were sitting in a doctor's lounge in the hospital, or you're just talking before the case, did you have personal discussions with the doctors? Did they tell you about their family, their life, where they're from? What, what else were you, were they comfortable talking about? Yeah, no, we, 
it's the conversations are incredibly mundane in the sense that they tell us about their children. He goes, you know, and it's like, how's your son? He goes, oh yeah, he got into medical school. Yeah. And uh, you know, with 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 you know, beaming eyes because <laughs> he's he's super proud of his his son. I said, what is he gonna go into? So like, you know, oh, orthopedics. You know, and with, with, with a with a with a disappointment. <laughs> Same thing this year. <laughs> did, did they have questions for you about the U.S. about? What, sure. What's what's sure. you know Mass General like that sort of thing? What, what you so, know? You know we 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 talk about um, and it's an interesting conversation because they they have a socialized health system. So the government uh, actually provides free medical care, preventive care, and curative services to the extent that they're able, right? Because they're still a low-income country, but all surgeries are actually free of charge. Um, uh, is there bribing going on or, or sort of things to move up in front of the line? I think that happens in any country, right? Even in, you know, in the U.S., I think, you know, if you yeah. want to move up by the line, it's like, hey, can, can you call somebody at Mass General for me? I'll, you know, get, it, right. get in. That no, happens all the true. time, even today. Yeah. True. <laughs> but in, 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 so there's, there's that going on. But for the most part, the services, medical services are free of charge. So when we talk about the U.S. healthcare system, where you know the the operations can you know go in the hundreds of thousands, it blows their mind. It's like how do they afford that? It's like what well, have insurance system and all that? But but the, the the truth is, you know, the number one cause for bankruptcy in the U.S. is is medical bills, even with people with insurance. So when when they hear things like that, they just like look at us and it's like, why are you doing that to your people? You know, they, 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 right. they just don't get it. Um, yeah. Uh, and then the whole idea of, you know, private practice, um, it's, it's, it baffles their mind. Yeah. Key, what has been your, um, have you had overall goals with all these, these trips uh, and really the whole global neurosurgical network, which you've talked about? Is there a vision that you have where you're teaching neurosurgeons where you get um, everybody globally to a certain level of neurosurgery, or, or are you really more focused on coming in doing as much good work as you can uh, in a period of time? Oh, that's a great question, Keith. I have uh, 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 basically stopped doing clinical work uh, 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 like five years ago now, almost five years ago, uh, so that I can devote full time on the you know, sort of public health aspects of unmet surgical and, and, and neurosurgical care. Now, when I look at uh, 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 the North Korea situation, my main objective, right? Sort of the, 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 the mega objective, uh, and my, maybe some people will call it uh, idealistic, is to remove all barriers for improving the health of North Korean people. You know, you, you, I started looking at why are why are North Korean doctors so socialized to scarcity? Why are they using scalpel again and again until it's fully you know, until, until it's dull? Why you know they have more scalpels in, in, in the closet, but you know they're just they just socialized for this kind of you know uh, scarcity. It's because they still are under uh, uh, there, there's no peace on the Korean Peninsula. And really, there's nowhere like the, in, in like North Korea where the, the failure to achieve peace impacts the health of North Korean people to the, to the extent that it does. And, and, and peace is a prerequisite to health. 
right? So, so I, 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 I'm pro-peace pro on North Korea. Let's declare the, the, the war over. Let's try to figure out a, a sustainable path to peace so that we stop fighting. Because that's the most, thing, most important thing I think I can do to help the health of North Korean people. Now, that being said, uh, in a short term, there are specific things that prevent uh, uh, international collaboration and assistance uh, on health, health. And so now that's in, in incredibly important and, and currently because of the pandemic. Right? We all know that in pandemic situation, we are as, as secure as the weakest link. And it's, it's in everyone's interest to help one another to fight this, 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 this virus, which is an external threat, not among each other. Mm -hmm. I would love to see uh, a restoration, not just a restoration, but a unrestricted uh, flow of health aid, uh, food aid, humanitarian aid, bilaterally, right? And, and, and do it in, a, in, a, in a, 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 a solidarity framework, not a donor uh, and, a, and a recipient relationship, but in partnership with North Korean doctors. So, you know, I'm, something like a, 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 a multi-year large-scale health cooperation slash humanitarian assistance package. Um, if we can make that happen with North Korea, uh, that would be, you know, my, my dream come true. So, Key, you know, I was looking this morning here, so this, you know, this is just data that comes from the CIA World Factbook, and, you know, some of it's coming from the World Health Organization, but, you know, you're looking at um, physician density, population, obesity stats, and, you know, life expectancy metrics, all those kinds of things. But I wonder, like, where does this data come from, right? You know, who's putting it together in North Korea? Because there's a lot of, you know, dark zones that we just don't have access to. Even here, like HIV rates, it just says not available. I think what you just said, you know, uh, you know, finding a way to work through these sanctions to help people, there would probably be more support certainly here in, in the U.S. and probably in South Korea if we knew what these sanctions were doing and what they were stopping. Um, when you look at a lot of this overall health data, how accurate do you think, how do you weigh that data that's coming out of North Korea? And are there better ways for people to see how these things are affecting North Koreans? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, no. So you're, you're, this is a great question. There was a lot of, uh, um, you know, suspicion that the data that the North Korean Bureau of Statistics was, 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 was releasing was not accurate. And it's probably more true than not earlier on. So in 1990s, they opened up their country for international assistance due to the famine. This is when UN agencies all went in and they're, they're still there now to this day. And when they tried to verify, things were all over the place. But since the UN has been in place since uh, you know mid 1990s, so now over 20 years, you can see a, a convergence of what North Korea is reporting and what the UN is saying we think is happening. So there, there's there, the numbers are more accurate than not. Most recently, the UN, um, the UNICEF conducted a, a multiple indicator cluster survey, uh, 8,500. Uh, households uh, asking all kinds of questions about nutritional status, educational status, and you know, food and all that, you know, medical, uh, all that stuff. And unprecedented, North Korea agreed to a 24-hour notification for verification. So the, the, the survey was conducted by North Korean Bureau of Statistics, but the UNICEF reserved the, the right to go and check on household number 17, let's say, and ah, then verify the information. And used to be like five day notification. 
And that creates <laughs> this sort of, uh, you know, why do you need so much time? You know, suspicion that maybe then they, 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 you know, they, they could make something up, or, you know, who knows? 24 hours to create a fam family to answer all those questions, that's probably not gonna happen. What it is, what, what it means is it's, it's those numbers are, you know, they're, they're saying come verify if you want, right? It, it's, 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 so we think uh, uh, those numbers are much more accurate. So they have stunting rates, you know, 20% stunting rates, uh, uh, a little bit higher in the, in the uh, rural areas. But those, so these these numbers are pretty much uh, uh, believable. Uh, I think believable. Yeah. Very interesting. We're getting really close on the time. Um, do you have any contact with the the colleagues you've met over there? Are you allowed to talk with them? And is there any? I'm sure it's not working now, but is there any potential for at least telehealth where you could collaborate on cases that you could view images? Uh, how does that look? So telehealth uh, meetings have begun since the pandemic, uh, at least through a channel that we have, uh, uh, we work with in Europe. So this is a European consortium of, of doctors that work with North Korean doctors, and they've had at least one telehealth session that I'm aware of. And I think the last one got canceled for whatever reason. So I think that's, a, that's, that's something that can and, and, and should happen uh, further. Uh, as far as contacting you know, myself directly with North Koreans, it's um, hit or miss. I do have the email address for the Medical Association and the Ministry of Health, but Ministry of Public Health. Sometimes they reply, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I get just straight out emails from them out of the blue. And then sometimes I'll get text messages or even a phone call from them out of the blue. Huh. But then if I send a message, uh, I don't have a, a, a no one, no doctor in the, in, in the, at the Pyongyang Medical College or the, or the Red, Red Cross Hospital uh, I cannot ask, uh, reach them directly. Uh, there's no personal email or even a, a mobile number I can use. It has to go through either the, you know, the, the DPRK mission in, in New York or let's say even Geneva. Uh, I've, I've used their channels, but you know, it has to go through them. Yeah. Do you hope to get over there anytime soon? How optimistic are you? Yeah, I, I would love to. Uh, I was just there in November of 2019. Um, there's a, a project uh, with the WHO to strengthen uh, pediatric surgical care capacity in a single province in North Korea. It's a $5 million project, and it's been on hold since uh, uh, because of the pandemic. I would love to see this project get started because it's eventually going to lead to a nationwide surgical system strengthening uh, uh, project, which will cost you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, uh, I, I, yeah, it's one of the few the, the things within the comprehensive package of, of health cooperation. Uh, 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 and I would love to see that happen. So we, right now, as you know, North Korea has sealed their borders due to the pandemic. Uh, there's been an outbreak of COVID. Uh, and so now maybe they're shifting their strategy from zero COVID to more of a living with COVID, in which case it increases the likelihood of, of, of having international teams uh, uh, go back in. Oh, great. Well, one last question for me, and hopefully it's not too big for the end of the session. Um, what, um, what did you bring back from North Korea in terms of your perception of American medicine? Are there things that you're looking at that you say, you know, they do it simpler there, or, they, or we could learn this from them? Keith, it's not just North Korea. I, I left the U.S. in 2009 
I was in private practice and then I went to Ethiopia, then Cambodia. I lived in Cambodia for three years working at a government hospital. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I, I, I noticed was how the patients after major spine surgery, big incisions, right? Foot long incisions didn't require narcotics, opioids, right? I was like, and then I said, are you in pain? He goes, yeah, I'm in pain. I mean, what are they going to say? But they weren't suffering from it. They expected the pain and it was controlled with just diclofenic is what they use mostly. And it made me think about, you know, the American patients that I used to take care of for, you know, decades. I, you know, we are now, I think, the American patients, and I'm generalizing here, but we, you know, we're consumers and we've now been sensitized to, you know, to ex- or, or we're not expected to like not feel any pain after surgery, which is an unrealistic goal. And you know, U.S. is what a four percent of the world's population, but we consume disproportionate amounts of the of the opioids. Right. And so that's one indication. Like, wait a minute, something's not right here, you know. And then plus the fact that the cost of the the, the, the medical care keeps going up, even though the technology isn't revolutionary they're just incremental improvements but they're, they're you know they caught there's a it, there's a commercial driving force in the u.s healthcare system that is uh, uh, there's a behemoth and this i guess that's how i could best describe it and then and, and that's it, it made me see that much more clearer being outside and looking from from there uh, uh but once you're in the system you're like you know you just do what you do you know? yeah well, both those uh, points warrant an hour each. You'll have to come back and <laughs> exactly. talk about them some more. We're, I hear the bell going. We, we have reached the time. There's so much more I want to talk about. But um, Keith, thank you so much. Uh, lastly, is there anything that you could point our listeners to that could help them learn more about North Korea? It seems it's hard to do that sometimes, but sources of information, even you know, journalists or authors, is there anything at all or just more about your work? Well, thanks so much for asking that question. I think the U.S. media has, has, a, has a responsibility, American media, to educate the U.S. population. And I, I think they've failed at it. Uh, they've portrayed North Korea as, you know, sort of a rogue state. But I think the best advice I can give to anyone interested in what's happening in North Korea is to look at the history, look at the facts. Um, there was an armistice signed in 1953. One of the terms of the armistice was to not introduce any new weaponry onto the Korean Peninsula. Five years after the armistice, U.S. brought in tactical nuclear weapons onto the Korean Peninsula. And and we told North Korea we're doing that. So you wonder why North Korea is so bent on, you know, developing their nuclear weapons. It's not, you know, so you have to really get that balanced view. And we don't get that here in the U.S. You only see this sort of goose-stepping North Korean troopers, you know, and they're going to hit U.S. You know, they can reach us anywhere in, in the U.S. now, and it's a threat to the U.S. Well, you know, we, we t- it takes two to tango, and U.S. had a lot of, you know, a lot to do with that. Interesting. Well, Key, we got to let you go. I know you got another meeting, but um, thank you so much for coming on. That was a lot of fun, and uh, I think we here. did okay in our, our time that we had here. That was great. Great. I'm happy to schedule another one because I enjoyed this so much. That was my next question. So uh, I think we're going to do that. (laughs) That's that's good. (laughs) That sounds great, gentlemen. I got to go, though. Let's plan on that. Well, everyone, that was Dr. Key Park. Um, We'll have more in the notes and show notes as always. But wherever you're listening, take care. See you here next time. 
Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com. <laughs>